is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Rob Archer in for Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth is a daily news magazine where we dig deeper in on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. Winter COVID surge leading to new records here in the U.S. About one million cases recorded Monday, which surpassed the old record of 590,000 set just last week. We'll go in-depth on whether we can withstand the onslaught of these uh, cases and hospitalizations. If that's not bad enough, there's a new variant found in southern France that has some scientists worried. And if that is not bad enough, hospitals are having a tough time finding enough Pfizer and Merck's COVID pills just as they're filling up. Students exhausted from the pandemic, a lot of them struggling with mental health issues, the constant changes when it comes to schools opening, then closing, the testing, the vaccines, the types of masks you have to wear. We'll talk about that. If you're wondering about the risk of catching COVID when you leave the house, try telling an app your plans. And then we know all about traffic here in Southern California. We're going to talk about the jam in Virginia. People stuck in the snow for hours and hours and hours. We're going to start with the COVID winter surge. With us is Dr. Edward Jones-Lopez, an infectious disease specialist with Keck Medicine of USC. Uh, thank you for joining us. So this Omicron variant, this is really uh, faster than anything we've seen before, not just with the coronavirus, but with any virus that spreads. Is that correct? Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, that is correct. Um, actually, you know, I think it's worthwhile to just briefly talk about the historical perspective. You know, this is a new variant that was detected maybe five weeks ago in South Africa, and it very quickly replaced previous variants. The previous one immediately before this one was Delta. That was already thought to be more infectious, more transmissible than previous uh, variants before that. No? So the history of this epidemic, uh, not not unsurprisingly, has been that a, a new variant replaces the previous one and so on. Uh, this one in particular is uh, hypertransmissible, and that's probably a combination of the virus itself and also a change, a major change in social patterns, meaning much more interaction between humans, uh, largely because of vaccines and lowering the guard because of that. Yeah. So what do the projections show? Obviously, a sharp peak means that a lot of people get infected. When you run the numbers, even if it's a more mild type illness, the sheer amount of people can still overwhelm the hospitals. But timing wise, I mean, do we expect that this could be something that's relatively quick because it does spread so fast? I mean, if we do follow the South Africa model or maybe, you know, what we think they're seeing in the U.K.? Yeah, that is correct. Actually, there's some data, emerging data. Again, we only have about five, maybe six weeks of observation for this particular variant. And it first appeared or was first detected or reported from South Africa. And within a few weeks now, there's some data from South Africa also that is somewhat waning. So a very big exponential jump in cases and then a quick uh, drop in cases. And it's expected to have a similar epidemiological um, scenario in other countries and in England also the same thing is happening you know so difficult to know exactly what's going to happen but based on these two examples and maybe others that are emerging uh, it is expected to have a very large increase in cases now an important point to make here and I think you mentioned it is that although this particular variant is much more transmissible causing many more cases uh, it's broken records throughout the world it's much less virulent and there's some data now suggesting why that is, um, and that's very interesting and important. 
Um, so it's very likely that the combination of a virus that is less virulent and the amount of people, particularly in countries where there's access to vaccines, the combination of immunity through vaccines and natural infections actually is going to expect it, uh, it's going to have a much less dramatic increase in hospitalizations and deaths in particular. Yeah? So not everything is bad news uh, within this particular new variant. All right, a quick question. You know, government officials, I think they're kind of afraid of the pushback they're going to get. Uh, they're saying, uh, we're not going to lock down this time. We're not going to do, uh, you know, closed businesses or anything. Is, is, that the, is that the right move or the wrong move? Should we lock down to, to stop this Omicron variant? Yeah, so that's, those are the very key questions that are actually um, causing a lot of debate. There's a lot of discussions among uh, people who know what exactly to do. What I can tell you is that the previous recommendations that were developed over several months at the beginning of the epidemic are no longer applicable uh, in many ways. You know? It's clear now that the virus is really among us. Uh, before, there was a lot of emphasis on household transmission or small group transmission. You may remember that the first evidence of uh, outside of household or certain group transmission was in the nursing homes in Seattle back in the very beginning of the epidemic. And that really meant there was already what is called community transmission. And that was a very ominous sign that the virus was really very much established in the U.S. and in other countries. And now it's very clear, just from the sheer number of cases that are occurring, there's most of the transmission now is at the community level. So it's really impossible impossible at this point to really interrupt transmission at a at a population level no? dr so, edward uh, jones lopez we're out of time we've got to run infectious disease specialist keck medicine of usc doctor thanks reports out of great britain say a warning has been issued there for a new variant found with 46 mutations. It was uh, discovered in southern France, and there is concern that it could be as transmissible as Delta, but causing more severe disease, as well as a better ability to avoid the vaccines. So how worried should we be? With us now is Dr. Brian Labus, epidemiologist and professor of UNLV's School of Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us. So how worried should we be about this new one? Well, we continue to see variants pop up all over the world. Uh, It still remains to be seen if this variant means anything or is just one of the many that we've seen that goes nowhere. So at this point, we're watching that to see if it means anything, but it's a little too early to, to be super concerned about it. Yeah, there's some discussion, at least on the, you know, epidemiologist Twitter saying this actually probably predates Omicron and you can't really compete with Omicron. So it's probably not anything of consequence. But to your point, I mean, we're going to end up seeing more than these or more of these. So I guess we come down to this scenario of every time we hear about one, we don't necessarily need to freak out. Right. It's just kind of a wait and see like we did with the one that we're dealing with right now. Exactly. Uh, Delta and Omicron are the ones that people are aware of, but we've had a lot more variants than that popping up all over the world. We track them when we find these new variants because of the potential to be a problem. But until we see them actually doing something in the real world, we can't really get concerned about them. It really comes down to how well this new variant can compete against what else is out there. And if it doesn't spread more easily, then the other variants just bypass it and it kind of loses the game. And that's the end of it. Are these new variants that uh, are uh, spread faster and are more dangerous, did we avoid the chance to stop them before we got them, or was this going to happen anyway? In other words, if everybody had gotten vaccinated when the pandemic first began and maybe we had stopped the spread of it then, would that have stopped these variants or would they have happened anyway? Well, variants are a, a natural process that occur. We get mutations when viruses multiply. 
the more people that are infected, the more chances there are for these new variants to pop up. So in many ways, if we had vaccinated everybody on the first day it was available and stopped a lot of the transmission, we would stop the number of variants that were popping out. But as long as there's any transmission, variants are always going to arise because that's just the nature of viruses. What do we know about Omicron and then reinfection with another variant? Because it seems like if you had Delta, you can still get Omicron because people in South Africa seemed to do that. But is the jury still out on what it means for, for people who, who go through Omicron, either, you know, breakthrough or they get it for real and then something else comes down the line and we have to wait and see what happens there? Well, we've only been dealing with Omicron around the world for the last three or four weeks. So we really don't know what happens after people get Omicron. It's really too early to say because they haven't had a chance to be exposed to anything else. Uh, We don't know how that immunity lasts. We don't know that much about it other than uh, the numbers are increasing. We'll just have to wait and see what it means for our immunity long term. Uh, there was uh, some scientists were saying that because Omicron spreads so quickly, that might also bring a silver lining and that it might burn itself out quickly as well. Uh, are we going to see this with this new variant or is it is it uh, just slow enough that it's not going to burn out fast? Well, it depends on how quickly that variant spread compared to Omicron or whatever else is out there. So if that new variant can't spread faster than Omicron, it's not going to get a foothold. It's not going to go anywhere. And Omicron will be the one that we continue to deal with. It's basically a race among viruses to infect people, but it's not spreading so quickly that it's going to burn itself overnight. Uh, The other thing you have to think of is for that to happen, it would have to infect everybody. And it doesn't move that quickly. We've been dealing with this for two years now, and the whole world has not been infected by this virus yet. I can't imagine Omicron would do that in a matter of a couple of weeks. Is there some scenario where every winter, once this becomes, you know, more endemic, that there's a new variant and then we target it like we do the flu with the yearly shot? That's entirely possible. The the way it mutates is different than what we see with the flu. Um, But we do get on average about two mutations a month uh, showing up in coronavirus. It it does not mutate as quickly. Um, But it is something that we would... Uh, potentially be dealing with every winter uh, will reach some sort of equilibrium between humans and the virus. And it'll be one of those, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's COVID season. So you have to do X, Y, and Z to protect yourself, just like we say every year for, for the flu. We're not at that point yet. We're still seeing these new variants happening and seeing a lot of disease spread, continual outbreaks of these things. Until we reach that equilibrium, though, uh, it's, it's not going to be kind of an annual thing. We'll continue to have these waves uh, until we reach that equilibrium point. Dr. Brian Labus, epidemiologist, professor, UNLV's School of Public Health. Coming up, new apps can help you navigate your risk of catching COVID when you're out and about. And more people than ever are quitting their jobs, but many of them aren't necessarily in a rush to go back to work. Hospitals across the country having trouble finding enough of the COVID treatment pills, especially the one made by Pfizer. A lot more demand than supply right now. And uh, the timing couldn't be worse. Hospitals filling up again. Dr. Thomas Yadigar, Medical Director of the Intensive Care Unit, Providence Cedars-Sinai in Tarzana. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So I think some people have this thought that, you know what, it's all going to be fine because we're vaccinated. And then even if you're not and you get a case, you can go and take this pill because they'll be here. But they're not really here yet, right? Uh, it's not difficult to, impo- to find them. Uh, it's impossible to find them. Uh, they, uh, Even though they were approved, uh, I think, about 10 to 14 days ago, there isn't a single pharmacy that has them available at this time. So what's the holdup? Is it supply chain? Is it they, they haven't manufactured enough yet? Uh, probably a little bit of both. Um, unfortunately, even besides the COVID pills, the monoclonal antibody infusion, which also reduced the need for hospitalization by 90%, those have become incredibly scarce as well. 
Um, I've been using those for the past year since they received its emergency use authorization, but it's even more difficult to get them January of 2022 than it was January of 2021. Does that have to do with more people being in the hospitals and more people needing that right now? Or, or what are you hearing or what kind of guidance are you getting, if anything? I think partly it is due to the fact that many more people are developing COVID-19 due to Omicron and the fact that it is so much more transmissible. But, you know, at this point, we've, we're almost two years into this pandemic and um, there's really no excuse for it. I think this should have been, um, you know, expected that we were going to be in this situation and we should have infusion centers with, uh, you know, monoclonal antibody infusion widely accept, uh, uh, available, as well as the oral pills widely available. Because, again, um, obviously it's important the number of cases that we have, but more important is the number of hospitalizations and deaths. And these interventions, you know, decrease the number of hospitalizations by 90%. Is there a concern among uh, doctors and some health experts that if these COVID treatment pills do eventually get out there and they are available, that it will lead to some, like some of the vaccine denying people like to say, I'm still not going to get the vaccine. And if I get sick with COVID, I'll just take the treatment pill. Is there a worry that that might eat into the supply that we have for people who who manage to get sick because they can't take the vaccine? You know, that may be a concern, but I think that's still a minority of patients. I think at this point, um, anyone who's going to get the vaccine probably would have gotten it by now. And I think there will still be, you know, 20, 25 percent of people who will hold out. But um, what we're seeing is that, you know, it's obviously the vaccinated uh, are not the patients that are getting admitted to the hospitals um, as, as high as a frequency as the unvaccinated. But there are still patients who are susceptible, even though they're vaccinated. Those are the patients that are um, elderly, have chronic medical conditions, and uh, those treatments would be incredibly important to keep them out of the hospital. Does this turn into like a next winter thing almost instead of a this winter thing like we had hoped or maybe some had expected that, you know, COVID's still with us and then you can go get your Tamiflu pill, you know, next winter, but sorry, it's not going to help you for the next month or two. Well, I, I wish I could, I could say it's going to be next winter, but I think more likely if you're looking at the past two years, it, you know, there is a summer spike as well as a winter surge. So I think, you know, hopefully we'll have our act together for what may come in the summertime in July and August. Uh, looking down the road, is there a, a chance that maybe some of these uh, COVID treatment pills, uh, as we learn to live, because we're going to wind up living with the coronavirus. It's never going to go away. Uh, could some of these treatment pills eventually be something sold over the counter, like you have uh, treatment for uh, severe colds? Well, they do have some side effects, and um, they are restricted for the high-risk patients. So someone who's young and healthy in their 20s uh, doesn't really require them. Um, at this point, you know, it's for high-risk patients, and they do need uh, at least a physician evaluation to make sure that there aren't any uh, contraindications to their use. Dr. Thomas Yadigar there, Medical Director of the Intensive Care Unit, Providence Cedars-Sinai in Tarzana. Doctor, thanks for talking to us, and uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. With Mike Simpson, I'm Rob Archer, in for Charles Feldman. Pandemic's been hard on just about everybody. Kids and college students have had mental health problems. Many are experiencing burnout. Schools have been closing, then opening, then closing again. 
And then the vaccination rules can change, the mask rules change, and it's hard for a lot of them to keep up. And also, they can't always see their friends like they used to. So are we adults hurting our kids just to protect ourselves? Dr. Norman Freed is a clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University specializing in family parenting and uh, counseling. Thank you for joining us. So this is like one of those, uh, which, which one is the worst problem? Uh, is it more of a physical danger to kids if we don't change the rules to keep them physically safe from getting sick or getting infected with COVID? Or is it more of a danger to their mental health if we keep changing these rules and keep changing their world on them? Well, thank you for having me, Rob and Mike. I appreciate the question. Um, the answer is that from a psychological perspective, from the perspective of a child psychologist, it's very important that every one of us understands that we are all learning how to live in a difficult life and that sometimes things are imperfect. And unfortunately, this is imperfect. And our children are benefiting from learning more about how to get, how to navigate difficult experiences rather than putting them at risk physically. Now, I'm not going to give you my political thoughts, but from a psychological nature, keeping the kids home in the name of not exposing them to potential illness might be less deleterious to their psyche than letting them go, get sick, and find out what it feels like to be ill. It's never ideal, but the job of adulthood is to learn how to deal perfectly with imperfect situations. And this is a time of life when our kids are learning that very task. I think we've got a whole camp of parents, though, going, okay, no, because I'm never going to want to go back to the at-home learning. So how do I square that, especially for the child, if they're going back and forth and back and forth, because then that's not fun for them either. Um, and, and different ages have different problems, right? Because for a, a little one, you've got to try and explain that. And then for you know a college student or, or a high schooler, they're still probably at this point of, Maybe it's some deja vu now because it's almost like they got a little slice of life where it was normal. And now they're like, oh, no, are we going back to, to last year again? Exactly. And unfortunately, the answer could be yes. Right now in this country, depending upon the state, there are different uh, different rules about that. And some schools are hybrid. Some schools are still in person. Some schools are not. But I want to say to you, since you're asking me not as a parent, and I am a parent of three, but also as a psychologist, that from a psychological perspective, the parents that are struggling might be unhappy with the fact that they have to now find ways to accommodate their children who are not able to go to school. But that is not as important as what is their mental well-being as well as their physical well-being, which is that we raise our children in a way that teaches them how to accommodate to difficult situations. It's never easy in this life. Things will be challenging. And things don't go as we wish. Oftentimes, grades don't go as we wish. Oftentimes, kids don't get into the particular sport that they want or the part in the school play. And we have to teach them that this is a challenge that we will muddle through and prevail. And I'm so sorry that there are competing thoughts on this. And I'm not speaking for other parents other than to say that it is more of a psychological deficit to allow children to become ill and watch their friends, some of them not do so well, while others, God willing, do, versus children who are at times experiencing malaise and fatigue because they can't go back to school right now. You called it deja vu. 
Absolutely. Unfortunately, there are things in this life that will repeat themselves. Some, God willing, are good. Some, unfortunately, are not so good. You know, you kind of uh, hinted at this earlier, and I want to touch on it. Uh, maybe an argument can be made that uh, kids having to grow up dealing with this and all the changing rules, and now we've got a variant that's more dangerous, and now we have to shut schools down again for a little while, and we're going back and forth and back and forth, and the rules keep changing. Uh, maybe there's an argument to be made that when these kids live through this and survive this and grow up, that they will become stronger people because they'll be better able to deal with changing situations and figuring out how to respond to dangerous situations when you don't always know what the rules are going to be tomorrow. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. And your reframe is very generous and validating to me as a psychologist. And I want to say to you that I agree. And that's because we think we're raising children, but we're really raising them to become adults. And childhood might last 18 years, but God willing, adulthood lasts another 70 and we want to make sure that our kids are prepared for the 70 years ahead. And sometimes in those years, there are challenges. There are people who will lose their job. There are people who lose their spouse. There are people who will get sick. Life will have its challenges. And if we can't teach our children how to prevail through the difficulties when they're young, they're going to have a harder time doing so when they're older. It's not ideal. I'm not fatalistic, but I'm realistic in recognizing that even children have to deal with life events. Some of my patients have gone through trauma, the loss of a parent, the loss of a sibling. Some of them grow up in war-torn nations with attacks coming from overhead. They become accommodated and learn how to prevail. And when we think this isn't fair to them, the answer is correct. It's not fair. But that's not what life is about. The psychological well-being of our children is not about making it perfect for them. It's about helping them deal when it's not perfect. Dr. Norman Freed, clinical psychologist, professor at Columbia University. We are going to talk about these COVID risk apps that are out there. There's different ones. Some can go on the phone. Some can be like online calculators. And it's almost akin to checking the weather to see the chance of the rain for a day. You're thinking, okay, I'm going to go to this party or I'm going to go to Costco or I'm going to go here or there. And I want to know the risk to me for maybe contracting COVID or some of them operate like if I go to this gathering at this zip code, you know, what are the chances that somebody's going to show up and have it, right? You know, I've got, my weather app says uh, rain's going to be starting in an hour <laughs> yes. and it would be nice to know, hey, COVID's going to be starting in an hour. an hour. If you go here, don't go there. So go get the yeah. Pedialyte yeah. stay and, away. Uh, stay yeah. at home, order some food and soup. Um, so we're going to track down or hope to track down one of the researchers who has put one of these together. But we still have our psychologist with us, our professor, Dr. Norman Freed. So, doctor, based on that premise, and hopefully we'll get somebody to, to further explain exactly how these work. But based on that one, I can see this going a couple different ways. Number one, it tells me that uh, I'm pretty in the clear to go to that gathering that I wanted to. And I think, OK, the risk is mild to moderate. I'm going to go. Or it tells me that this situation I'm going into is more of a risky business, or maybe I'm just having a different kind of assessment. Maybe moderate to me is, is super high on the scale of somebody else. And I'm wondering, can this like induce a lot of anxiety if you're using these before you go out and trying to, to do your daily life? It's a wonderful question. And I, I really appreciate that. There are two very compete, uh, powerful competing views here. But I want to remind everybody that this is a time of trauma, right? We are unnerved about what we're learning every day in the news. Is it good? Is it bad? And when we deal with trauma, 
it's very important that we have a sense of control and power. One of the side effects of having been scared, traumatized, if you will, by the news, by the information we're getting is a sense of disempowerment. We can't affect change in our world. So here's this app, which I know nothing about, and I hope it's an accurate one. But if it is, what it does is it allows the person to have a sense of control over an otherwise out-of-control experience. And that is one of the ways we heal from trauma. So I'm not to speak about it from a medical perspective, but assuming that it's ethical and very well figured out, people who have a sense that they can go to this party or this neighborhood because it's got a low rating, I guess, will have a sense of I can control some outcome in my environment. And that helps us when we're stressed out and anxious. Now, there are people, as you say, that might find this to be too anxiety provoking because they're given choices. If that's the case, no one's forcing them to get the app. Therefore, if they know that they can't really make quick decisions, their executive functions are somewhat compromised emotionally, they don't get the app. But those that have the opportunity to say this neighborhood is a safe neighborhood will feel a relief from the trauma of lockdown and media scares and confusion that everyone is feeling for now almost two and a half years. Yeah, and I don't know if I would even, you know, I'm not sure I would trust the app unless I can really understand how are they getting, making this decision that this is safe and this is not as safe and this is more dangerous. Because I, I know recently uh, my wife and I were talking about we so miss going to restaurants. And for a while people were allowed to go back to restaurants. We were still hesitant because we knew that the virus was still spreading and we just didn't want to take that risk. We were torn really wanting to go out, really missing the experience, but afraid to go sit in a restaurant or go sit in a movie theater, because especially now with Omicron. So what about people who just, I'm not going to trust the app. I'm not going to trust anything. Are we doing long-term mental damage to ourselves by just not trusting our safety anymore? That's a very powerful question and, and, and difficult to answer because everybody has their own experiences with trust and distrust. And please remember that a sense of trust in media as well as in people in our lives comes from other experiences where we, we were told that we can't trust somebody. We were hurt by putting our belief into somebody. And so I don't know how to answer that across the board, but I will tell you that in the name of trauma, in the name of panic, it probably would be more helpful to let people make a decision as opposed to being telling them carte blanche, universal precautions, no one leaves the house. And if they're having an issue with trust, I would encourage them to think about how this is similar to other events in their lives where they may not be able to trust certain relationships or then maybe not be able to trust certain certain um, things they read in the newspaper. We cannot control everyone's sense of betrayal versus trust and honesty. But those that feel as if they can trust will definitely have a lift in their sense of disempowerment. And I believe anxiety will reduce more than increase. Do you have concern that, that through all this and, and all the worry that's out there, I mean, we're going to end up with a lot more people with just generalized anxiety because it becomes like a feedback loop, right? You look for something to worry about because you've been worried about all these different things throughout. But then eventually you learn to worry. And then every day you wake up and you're worried about something, but you're not sure what it is because you're never going to find that answer. You're just worried. 
Well, the answer to your question is that we have, we are, I'm not concerned that it's going to happen. It is happening. I mean, for the last 20 months and uh, 25 months, if you will, we have uh, heightened generalized anxiety uh, throughout our nation and as well as internationally. And so you're right. There is almost a feedback loop where we are afraid something's going to happen and we have superstitious fears that that might happen. And then it does happen, which only reinforces our erroneous or superstitious fears and we believe them more and more. So I can tell you as a psychologist, my practice and everyone I know who's in my field have been so swamped with people who are having panic attacks, anxiety issues, disordered thinking, um, and lack of trust. And that's a, these are all examples and symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder and other forms of anxiety, including OCD and panic attacks. It is definitely on the rise. And it's sad because we want to have calm in our country. But unfortunately, whether it's the media or it's just human nature itself, drama seems to sell. And if there's drama, there's audience. And that's not always a healthy thing for a person who struggles with anxiety issues. Dr. Norman Freed, clinical psychologist, professor at Columbia University. Thanks for sticking with us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all our lives. With Mike Simpson, I'm Rob Archer. In today for Charles Feldman. We've all been in traffic jams because this is L.A., right? Going to, leaving work. Sometimes there's an accident and then you're in it for a while and it's a SIG alert. But a while can be like, I don't know, a couple hours or, or several at the worst, right? Yeah, I was stuck in a traffic jam for three hours. But imagine if it went for 12. Let's go for more. Or 15 or 20. Where some drivers in Virginia, just south of Washington, D.C., have been stuck in their cars for an entire day in the icy cold because of a section of the I-95 that was closed due to ice, snow, and several bad accidents involving big rigs and other cars. They had nowhere to go. They were just trapped right there. Jen Travis is with us. She was in that uh, mess for several hours, but is home now. We're also joined by Alex Wayne, a Bloomberg news editor, who was also in the backup, stuck for only, only six hours. How lucky. <laughs> I know. Thank you both for joining us. We're going to begin with uh, Jen Travis. Uh, I, I know what my first thought would be once I realized that I was stuck in a traffic jam I was not going to be able to get out of for many, many hours. What was the first thought that ran through your mind when you realized that was the case? Um, if we were going to have enough gas, because we're in a rental car, and I don't know how this, it's not my car, so I don't know how this car performs from a gas perspective. So, you know, if we're in this for the long haul, are we going to have enough gas? Are we going to have to get out of our car and go huff it to the next um, gas station and then how are we going to do that? We were in Florida. We were driving up from Florida. We had T-shirts and white jackets and sneakers. We didn't have snow gear. So how were we going, if we had to leave our car to go get gas, how were we going to do all that? I think that was my biggest fear um, throughout all of that, was just trying to keep warm. I mean, yes, you need food and water, but bearing the elements, that, that's a whole other ballgame. And at what point did it really settle in? Because I think maybe, okay snow and then it's a backup and you go well this will clear eventually i'll be here for a little while and then it's like okay this is not moving um i started seeing reports of people saying we'd been here 12 hours we'd been here 16 hours and i was like oh oh okay 
Um, but then I started seeing the, the powers that be. So like, you know, Virginia Department of Transportation saying we have people on the ground. They're coming. They're coming. You know, we're getting alerts on our wrist saying that help is on the way. And I'm looking around. I'm like, how? How are you going to get me help when I am surrounded by wall-to-wall cars? How are you going to get somebody to get me off these exit, to get me off this exit, off this highway? And how are you going to get me home? Like, I don't understand. What is your plan for all of this? Um, that's when I was like, we're 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 in something serious, and it's it's going to be a while before we before we get out of it. Okay, we also have Alex Wayne with us, a Bloomberg News Editor. Uh, Alex, thank you for joining us. You were only in this for six hours. Uh, I know some people in it, uh, there were some people that were in it a lot longer. And I know one of the first thoughts that would occur to me if I'm realizing we're stuck on this situation for 12, 15, 20 hours, I'm going to start thinking of where do I go when I have to, to go? go? Yeah. So uh, you only had six hours. Was that a was that a problem for you? Uh, I peed in a cup. I'll, I'll be <laughs> frank with you. <laughs> I, uh, peed in a cup and dumped it out the door. My wife wanted me to just uh, just step out of the car and stand on the side of the road and, and you know set up a little you know, car door shield and just go. Um, but uh, yeah, cup. Yeah. Um, I think that's the first time that's made kids. it on the yeah. show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How did this, because here's the big question, right? And we even hear it on, on like the network report. People say, how did this happen? How did we not get warned that it was going to be this bad? Or any insight on that? I mean, you know, I, I put a lot of the blame on, on motorists like my, myself and my wife who made, who made bad decisions. I mean, um, we, we were in a hotel in North Carolina um, uh, Sunday night, uh, woke up in the morning and looked at the news reports, looked at the forecast. They said, you know, it's going to be a big storm. It's going to be bad. Um, and my wife and I thought to ourselves, well, we'll be able to get through it. Um, for years around here, snowstorms have, have become, have been bust. The forecasts have said, oh, you're going to get six or seven inches and it's turned into two. And so I think everybody around here has been conditioned to, uh, to expect things to, to turn out. It's like rain or sleet or something. It's, you know, it's global warming. We don't get snow around here anymore. So, so we thought we could just, we could bust through it. We could just like, we, we got on the road early in North Carolina. We figured, you know, we would, there'd be some snow, but the roads would be warm. It wouldn't stick. We'd get, we'd get, we'd clear it. Um, that was all, those are all bad decisions. That was some bad thinking on our part. Um, we should have, we should have driven to like Richmond and then hold up at a hotel. Um, and really the only thing that, that kept us, that saved us was we, um, we did make a hotel reservation about 1030 in the morning. Um, when we realized that traffic was starting to come to like a dead halt. Uh, and then we spent the next six plus hours um, fighting our way through uh, stopped traffic to, to get to the hotel. Um, but I saw a lot of, and, you know, we were, we were also fortunate in that we were pretty well provisioned um, and we had an all wheel drive vehicle. Um, so we could go some places on the road that other cars couldn't go. I saw tons of people on the road who should not have been there, um, including truckers who were clearly unprepared for bad weather. A lot of this mess was caused by, uh, by tractor trailers, jackknifing or, you know, getting into accidents, getting disabled on the road and blocking all the other traffic. Um, I saw one tractor trailer driver, uh, get out of his truck. He he had been stopped by just kind of like a small snowdrift, got out of his truck with a hammer to try to unstick his wheels. I mean, that's just like, that's just bad planning, man. Like, bring a shovel with you. <laughs> Alex Wayne, Bloomberg News uh, editor, and Jen Travis was out there for several, several hours, but is home now. Jen, we hope you had snacks. Uh, Alex, we're glad you made it to the hotel. Thanks for talking to us uh, after the epic traffic jam out there. 
Four and a half million Americans left the workforce in November. Number of job openings remain high based on the historical standards. Uh, many career experts say that the great resignation signals a new wave of workers who are just simply burning out. Others believe that Americans are tired of settling for unfulfilling or low-paying jobs. But what about the working parents and caretakers quitting to meet their families' needs? Misty Haganis, principal economist, senior advisor for the U.S. Census Bureau. Misty, thanks for being with us. So did we think that this uh, great resignation thing was going to calm down at some point? Because it hasn't as of yet. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, You know, I think it's really challenging to visualize a time when it when it is going to to calm down in the near term, um, given all the fluctuations with um, with COVID, and you know the we, right now we have Omicron, you know, raging <laughs> through the country, and um, it's just really challenging to be a parent who works and trying to balance keeping your family safe, keeping your children safe, and you know keeping food on the table. So um, you know I don't I don't know when we're going to come out of this. But, um, you know, this pandemic has definitely been a long haul for for all of us. It seems to be uh, kind of a big shift uh, going on, too, with workers, just like uh, if if you study any world history at all, you know that plagues have have brought a lot of big society change here. I don't know if we're seeing that here, but we are seeing some kind of a change because I think people are looking at their lives differently than they used to. Companies... uh, uh, as an example, uh, have now realizing just how much work workers can do from home, and workers are realizing just how much they can actually get done from home. Why was I going to the office in the first place when I could do yeah. all this at home and get more work done because it work on my hours and the way I wanted to get it done? Is that part of what's happening here, or are some people realizing that maybe chasing after more and more money and promotions is just not fulfilling when we're trying to stay safe from this pandemic? Yeah, so there's a lot of moving parts. Um, And I think that there is definitely a large proportion of us who have reassessed what health and well-being means in our lives. Um, You know, I used to drive into work on a daily basis. It was an hour commute. And now I work from home and that hour commute in the morning I spend, you know, helping my kids get ready for school and preparing breakfast for them. Um, and same in the, in the evening, I'm able to spend that hour that I would have otherwise been in my car um, with my kids when, you know, after I'm done with work and after they're done with school. So I think, and, and I can tell you that I feel like my own personal well-being uh, has increased um, because of this quality time that I'm able to spend with my kids. And I think a lot of people are going through that. They are reassessing, you know, I think this pandemic has forced us to really look at our lives and reassess what really matters. And I think our reassessments have shifted the game. And part of the ripple effect of that means that, um, you know, there is a change in labor supply and in people's willingness uh, to go out and work, you know, at the office or to do, um, you know, work that now has less of a value than the value they place on spending time with family. So there's the, the reassessing, which can be a good thing. We also mentioned, you know, caretaking and, and you have you have a kid. Um, there are maybe some people who are still on the sidelines who would want to be working, but they have to care for the child at home or they can't afford child care or the school situation is still in flux. So maybe they want to be out there, but they kind of can't be right now. Yeah, uh, you know, that is actually a very 
um, challenging point um, that holds true for a lot of parents. So I've recently done some research in this space looking at um, working mothers, and you can see um, there's this interesting dynamic going on where um, mothers with a college degree or higher who are in a telework compatible job have left the labor market disproportionately compared to their similar female counterparts without school-age children and relative to dads with school-age children. Um, and that's kind of counterintuitive to the way that we think about flexible work and women. Um, but, you know, I think part of it is, um, you know, mothers are who have resources either through savings or through another person, adult, you know, the, another working age adult in the household um, are making um, decisions to pull out of the labor market because this, you know, pandemic rat race has been just too challenging and exhausting and people are burned out and, you know, you can't give up on your children, you can't quit your children. And so if you're in a situation that is extremely demanding, um, where you're basically, you know, doing two jobs simultaneously, meaning you're caring for your children and you're also working, um, if you have to make a choice in that instance, you're going to choose your children. Um, so, I, you know, I do think that there is quite a bit of that going on these days. I think this fall with all of the inconsistencies and the, in, the you know, inability to really rely on the school system as a place for your kids to have safe care during the day while you work has um, meant that a lot of parents and particular mothers have chosen to leave the labor market. How long of an effect do you think this is going to be? Is is this great resignation going to be something, uh, and the way people view work is like, oh, I can work from home, or oh, I don't really need to work. Is this going to be a more of a permanent thing, or do you think this will begin to fade as the worst of the pandemic gets behind us? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of factors going on. Um, you know, when you look at what's going on with the labor market today, it's not just about people shifting expectations or, you know, people shifting expectations are changing the labor market in other ways too. For example, um, folks who are 65 plus, you know, a lot of folks, the, the rate of, of retirement has increased since the pandemic started, um, you know, in a, in a somewhat non-normal way. And so we've had this kind of influx of folks retiring. And part of that is, you know, if you're um, over the age of 65, you know, you're more likely to have, um, you know, health conditions than when you're younger. And if you're dealing with this, you know, viral disease spreading out in the community, um, you know, lots of people are choosing to stay in their home and stay safe and retire. And so, you know, some of those folks, you know, once the pandemic is over, perhaps they'll choose to go back out and work um, again or work part time. But but a lot of them won't because, you know, they'll be, you know, in that retirement age. And so um, I think it's hard to really predict what's going to happen moving forward. But um, I don't think, you know, we'll never be the same. I mean, this is a once in a century uh, you know, global event that I think has really um, shifted the foundation that we stand on in terms of how we see ourselves in society, how we view um, our families and the time that we spend with them, and also how we view work and the time we spend at work and how much of our lives we want to give to that and what, you know, what that means. Misty Haganis, Principal Economist, Senior Advisor for the U.S. Census Bureau. That's in depth for the day. We'll be back tomorrow.